0: Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Bert Monroe, CEO of Cora Gold, AIM-listed Gold Explorer in West Africa. We talk through their business plan. How are they going to deliver success for shareholders? Well, one, a very aggressive uh, plan to get into production, uh, looking to deliver a DFS by end of uh, 2021. That doesn't sound too difficult, does it? Well, they've only just completed a scoping study, so maybe there's quite a few things to deliver it between now and then. If they do, their main shareholder, the Quirk family through Lionhead Capital, will put up a will have put up a term sheet for 21 million pounds, um, mixture of equity, debt, and convertible note, and uh, highly um, conditional. So we talk through that. Uh, enjoy the podcast, Bert. How are you doing, sir?
1: Yeah, good, thanks, Matt. Good to see you. How are things?
0: Yeah, not bad, not bad. We haven't spoken since October. You've been a busy boy. No, a
1: bit of water <laughs> under the bridge, I guess, since then, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there has been. I think there has been. And where are you? you um, you back in London yet?
1: Sadly not. I'm on my way back. I'm currently uh, living the dream at my uh, my parents' in law house. Um, my wife went back to work, obviously, after our second child, so childcare solution is, was a must. But um, yeah, no, looking forward to getting home in the next week or so.
0: You know we're recording this, don't you? She, she could be watching. You never know. Yeah,
1: she's not that tech savvy, so I think think I'll be all right.
0: (laughs) Well, why don't we kick off and uh, do like a one-minute elevator pitch for people new to this story and then we'll pick it up from there.
1: Sure. Cora Gold is an AIM listed West African Gold company. Our main project is called San and Coro. We've got a positive scoping study completed on it, delivered it in January this year, an 84% IRR at 1400 Gold, rising to over 100% at $1500 Gold. A suite of exploration permits across Mali and Senegal. Um, yeah, that's core in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, you've um, you have been busy. You've been trying to um, get this thing delivered in an accelerated way. So I'm I'm interested in that. Okay, because um, one of your main shareholders was the Quirk family, um, and I notice you've got a bit of financing. We'll talk about that in, in a second. Um, but let's let's start with the business. Plan. Okay, when you first came into this, I think last September, October, you kind of were moving over into Cora. What was the plan then? What did you guys set out to try to do and have you had to change things in light of COVID?
1: Yeah, so Cora's business model is pretty straightforward. We've got a main project, San and Coro, and our plan is to move that into a producing asset as quickly as we can. That's being supported by the $21 million term sheet we signed a couple of weeks ago now, which is based on the scoping study economics we did in January, which would finance the project based on those economics on completion of a DFS. So our strategy is to take San and Coro and grow the resource initially and deliver a feasibility study before the end of next year, which on the back of that term sheet would then be financed if we, if we deliver the set, the criteria around the, the study results. So that's a pretty straightforward strategy, really. Take advantage of um, the gold price and the fact we've got, we believe a, a great project, which should be very positive and uh, you know makes a lot of money. Uh, In terms of COVID, the second part of your question, um, thankfully we've got a Malayan-based team um, and and management out there. So we've been, I want to say business as usual, I appreciate in this environment, it's probably the wrong expression to use, but thankfully we've been able to drill through through it. Um, We've been able to operate obviously with all the right precautions and, and restrictions in place, but we have been able to Operate through this period, um, albeit with you know with a few changes in place.
0: Okay, let's let's come back to that business plan, okay? Because most small companies, when I last spoke to you, about six million market cap, you're seventeen million today. You know, this is not a big company, right? So you've got different options on the table when you're sitting down as a board and saying, right, we're after gold, we're in the right place, geography, we're surrounded by you know gold mining uh, businesses. Um, Why? Why the need to go down this this particular route? Why do you want to get an accelerated timeframe to get into production? Which which is, you know, with what data were you basing that on? Why not just build out a big resource?
1: Yeah, I'll answer the first bit first, I suppose. Um I think look, as a as a group, um, both of with shareholders and, and as a management group, you know, our view is you can drill projects to become the perfect project. It could take you five years, it could take you ten years. Um the dilution, the amount of money you've got to raise to deliver that perfect project. You know, what value per share are you offering to your shareholders now? They're, they're the owners of your business. So our view is to deliver the best value and, and to create the most, um, the most secretive for our shareholders right now is to move this project as quickly as we can, um, raising as little cash as we can into a position where we're constructing a mine. Uh, ultimately then yeah, you, you'll then get a producing asset and then you'll have a huge amount more optionality. So, the project has an exploration target on it, uh, which is up to 2 million ounces of gold limited to 100 metres of depth. Mm -hmm. Of that, we've drilled out a little under 300,000 ounces of it um, in predominantly oxides. Um, So, our view is you take the oxides. So, without getting too technical, oxides are, you know, it's ore near surface. It's a free digging uh, material that has, you know, good metallurgical recovery rates. So, our view is, you you focus on the oxides um, Lower capex in terms of you know, building your plant, lower opex in terms of mining it, and get yourself into positive cash flow as quickly as possible. Um, I appreciate it's not it's not what everyone does. Um, it might not mean that you've got a ten-year mine life of hundred thousand ounces a year on your feasibility study when you, you know, when you're going to build it. But that doesn't necessarily make your shareholders the most money.
0: But he, he's, he was driving that. Was that? Um, I know because we we've, we've talked in the past about John Forster. Um, you know, very well regarded in the region, very experienced guy. You've also got in your backers, you know, a family who've made money from mining. So, but who's driving this? Why? Why is this a good model for now? Given it's, I mean, I assume what, what sort of grades are we talking about across the board?
1: Yeah, so the grades is about one point six, one point seven grams a ton in oxides. So, you know, from surface, so you know, for oxides, very good grade. I mean, there's plenty of oxide operations running at sub one gram a ton. Um look, I think our share register's pretty tight. We've got five shareholders who own about seventy percent of the business. Um, you've got the quirk family who are around thirty-four percent. You've got Michael Farmer, who's a founder of Red Kite Mind Finance, who's in at just under fifteen percent, um, Hummingbird at twelve percent. then there's another couple of shareholders at around five percent who we know well. So um you've got a tight share register. Um, you know, the quirks and the farmers owning, you know, basically 50 percent between them. You know, they like to build projects and, and to have producing assets so you know they have been you know taking up <clears throat> a fair amount of the previous financings and ultimately that strategy i guess has been discussed with them and that's you know what we're looking to execute
0: why is it a public company? why is it not a just private company doing this well
1: core was was private for a, for a long time obviously before i was involved and <clears throat> excuse me the listing came about um i guess post the amalgamation of, of some of the non-core hummingbird assets um back in 2016 2017 with what was Cora, which was run by by John Forster? Um, ultimately, at the time, um, the finance wasn't there for it. I guess you're in a different market. You know, Cora was. You know, I wasn't involved at the time, but they were trying to raise money, and they weren't able to do it privately as such. So they took an IPO as a route to to raise finance um, and and to obviously move the projects forward. So I suppose, like all these things, it's, it's circumstance. Um, but yeah, so obviously, we have an aim listing. You know, we've got plenty of shareholders uh, who obviously aren't, you know, our big five as well. So,
0: dint of fortune and timing, I guess, is the answer to that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So let, let's let's go back to the scoping study. So, what was the what were the what was the process you went through there? Because, like I say, it's it's quite a, it's great numbers, by the way, great numbers, but it's small, and with you know, with that sort of size comes a bit of risk. What are the things that you were looking out for, which made you nervous, um, and what were the things that got you over the line?
1: Yeah, so I think at the start of last year, um, Cora made this commitment to, to, to deliver a maiden resource and scoping study. So obviously at the time you weren't exactly sure what the resource number was going to come out at. Obviously, we've got this this pretty large exploration target. We've only really tightened up the drilling on a relatively small area. Um, and at that point, so, you know, we it's a fully pit constrained, you know, jork resource. So, you know, it has mining parameters, for example, 34 degree pit slopes, um, which you know, given a number of the mines in the region are operating at, you know, closer to 40 degrees in oxides, you know, I'd say it's, it's got conservative parameters within it. So, I'm just saying that to, to I guess, position the, the 260000 ounces we got in our inferred resource, which I guess was, was based on, as I said, not only, you know, relatively conservative, we hope, um, mining parameters um, and pit parameters, but also, you know, a limited drilling. So, yes, yeah, so out of that meant that the scoping study has a relatively short mine life. So we tried to size it on the basis that um, you know, we, we know and we expect to significantly increase the mine life and time. So rather than making a six or seven year uh, mine life and having a smaller production rate, we, we've gone for 45 to 50,000 ounces a year production. So you've got a meaningful amount of um, production, which, which generates you know, 1500 gold, $24 million a year in free cash flow. Um, I guess the big decision was was heat bleach or CIL. As a processing route. Um, the scoping study goes into details on both of them. Uh, ultimately, you know, the CapEx trade-off um, meant we, we led with, with heat bleach as our lead option. Yeah, you know, heat bleach is a it's a cheaper it's a cheaper, um, it's cheaper to build, uh, but ultimately you're sacrificing recovery. So heat bleach recovery seventy percent, CIR recovery probably closer to ninety-five percent. So I think it's a process we we could well need to go through again um, as, as we drill out the resource at the end of this year and the beginning of next year. And if you end up with a, with a much larger resource number, you could find that, that CIL might win that trade-off. So, I don't think we're – we aren't definitely going to do heat bleach, I wouldn't say, in terms of the feasibility study. I still think we need to go through that process. Um, we announced some, some MET results last week or the week before, and um, we, we said in that we're doing a much more um, – a much larger program at the moment with um, a lab in Perth in Australia. So I think out of that, we're looking at obviously both the heat bleach, CIL and, and gravity um, processing. So I think out of that, we'll be able to do much more analysis around um, you know, defining our process route from there.
0: I'm, yeah, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. The, the, like I say, with the, with the size, comes constraints and the fact that you're going to continually assess as you go along, I think it's smart. Um, let's talk about the money now. Because I'm intrigued by this. I'm really intrigued by this. You've got a term sheet. So, why don't you tell us about the term sheet first, and then I'll ask questions.
1: Yeah, sure. So, we we delivered the scoping study, and it had a capex of $20.6 million, a pre pre production capex of $26 million. Um, A group called Lionhead Capital, which is uh, an investment firm out of Cape Town, uh, which Paul Quirk, who's a non exec director of Cora, is also a a founding partner of Lionhead. Um, They delivered it, well, they they um they brought a term sheet to us for, for $21 million, broken up with $10 million of debt um, at a 10% interest rate uh, and a 1% royalty capped at 250,000 ounces, a $5 million convertible note um, on a three-year term paying a 10% coupon, um, which would then convert at a 30% premium to their equity. And their equity is for $6 million to make up the total 21 dollars and that's being priced at an 8% discount to market um, based on a VWAP at the time that the equity comes in. So obviously post the conclusion of your DFS. Um, so for me, I guess you might ask me a few questions on it, but for me, I mean, the last 10 years I was a hummingbird, you yeah, know, we obviously financed, yeah know, we we're looking at financing Liberia. So I guess I've seen a fair few West African financing deals. And for me, yeah, it felt really competitive terms. Um, you know, I was very pleased. Obviously we did negotiate them. Around the edges, and it wasn't exactly what we first saw in front of us. But we're really pleased to to close those terms. I think, as you'll know, normally when you raise equity, you're probably paying five percent commission to a broker, as well as as well as paying a discount um, at the market. So I think, um, yeah, I think we're we're pretty pleased with the terms. Exactly.
0: I definitely want to ask you questions, and I've and I've seen a few highly structured deals around West Africa for sure um, in in my time. Um, But isn't this also? It's not just the finance. Well, actually, let's be clear. You get this once you deliver a DFS. So when are you delivering a DFS, and how much work have you got to do between now and then? Because you've just done a scoping study. That's that's where you're at. So, forever to do. Yeah.
1: So the conditions of it, which is worth talking about, um, the conditions basically of us receiving the money, um, are, is based on us delivering a DFS um, to JORK standards before the end of next year, and it's based on having a minimum of six years mine life um, and forty thousand ounces a year production with an IRR of 60% minimum at a $1,400 gold price. So the comparable is our scoping study had 45,000 ounces a year and an 84% IRR at a 40, 1400 gold price. So so what we need to do now is um, you know, focus a little bit on resource growth and obviously add more ounces um, and then obviously complete a feasibility study. In the background, what we're currently doing in terms of the test work, the test work we're doing on the metallurgy will, will bring the test work on, on it up to sort of a PFS level which means that by the end of this year end of q1 next year you, you will be hopefully growing resources and you'll also be building up um, in terms of the process route um, the project forward as well
0: Got it okay so do you see this or was it designed this this financing as, as a marketing tool because it will catch people's attention no one fight no one get fin- no one gets financed off the back of a scoping study no one. Right, but you've got a piece of paper that says we will finance you. You know, well, at the when we've got a DFS. So, is this a way of capturing the market's attention? Was that deliberate or accidental? And you know, and, and are you going to be able to deliver this DFS with the with the cash you've got in the bank today? So, I mean, there's big big questions, but it's all around the same thread.
1: Well, I well, I guess there's two sides to it. Uh, on the one side, you know, yeah, I, I speak to the quirks regularly. Um, you know, they really like the project and they want to see the project come into production. So this essentially puts a line in the sand that says, we'll finance this project. We want to see this into production and they don't want to see it slipping away from them. So this essentially buys them the right to finance it, uh, assuming we deliver. So in that regard, um, you know, in my mind, I'm seeing it as a way of them protecting their interest in the project because they've now shown that they've bought the right to do it, um, which is obviously fantastic for us. Um, you know so I mean that for me that's that's the main reason um, yeah on the flip side as you said I mean it's it's early you know not many people get financing for projects at this stage but you know, hopefully that's a sign of of the quality of the project and and the market that hopefully we're, we're coming into that you know people want to finance projects which are which are of this caliber.
0: Well I think it's a sign that you've got an enthusiastic shareholder, existing shareholder who wants to tie up the options here so are, can they opt out can you opt out what are the, what are the actual terms look like?
1: Yeah, I think it's an important point, And actually, I, I probably should have raised it when you brought it up. But on the debt specifically, um, we have a right to um, get better terms on the debt. And if we're able to get better terms on the debt, you know, they have the ability to match it. But if they won't match it, um, we can take better terms. So actually, it's, it's actually even kind of better than, than what it says on the tin, because you know, I can go out and see if anyone will beat their 10 percent and 1 percent <laughs> NSR on the debt. And if they will, you know they have the right to match it, uh, but if they don't want to match it, and you know, they aren't. You know, Lionhead aren't really a debt funder per se, but but, in a, but, you know, but they're happy to make the return on it if, if they can. So if someone offers better terms, you might well find they'll say, "Look, we're happy with our our equity exposure uh, and the convertible, and you know you can take the better debt term. So I have got that that flexibility. Um, in terms of them, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously there are, you know, there are a fair amount of conditions around what you've got to hit. Um, you know, obviously we've got to hit the production rate in the study uh, and obviously that you know they have the you know, they are allowed they have to do the due diligence and we have to go through the process and the documentation to complete it so I mean obviously there there is ways that um, you know if the project didn't meet up to it I'm sure you know there are ways it might not it, it might get out of it but ultimately you know, they own 34 percent of the business, you know, they're doing it because they want to see the project getting built, not because not because they don't. So I, I'm pretty relaxed about that. No, but my, I, guess, I guess
0: where I was coming at it from is like the, the fact that you've gone and got a term sheet at such an early stage for a small project like this is so unusual. It in effect becomes a very substantial marketing tool for you guys to get noticed in the marketplace where let's face it, companies of your size wouldn't normally get noticed. Because you know, you know, you're, 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 people are talking about well, how do I raise the next one, two, three million bucks? Not actually, I've got some a piece of paper here for twenty-one million. So that, I was just looking at it from that perspective. Was it deliberate, deliberately done like that to give them options and give you some credibility in the marketplace whilst you whilst you went about the process of seeking alternative finance?
1: Yeah, and I think well. No, look, they put they put it to us, and you know, we obviously accepted it after a bit of negotiation. So, you know, I didn't I didn't phone them up, beating down their door, you know, begging them for the term sheet. You know, they phoned me up and said, you know, we you know we obviously like the scoping study, we like the project. You know, we'd be keen to put a term sheet to you, which which would help you finance it. And I was obviously, you know, very happy to, you know, very happy to receive it and, and negotiate it. So, yeah, for me, that was that was really how it came about. Okay.
0: No, I, I just think it's a smart move. I think it's a smart move on their part. Because uh, it's more than the sum of the parts. And um, let's talk about between now and then. You've got to get a DFS done. How much cash have you got today? About $4 million in the bank. Right. How much is it going to take for you to get a DFS over the line?
1: Yeah, I think, and I guess, sorry, yeah, we've got $4 million today. And we did a financing last year at 7p, a £2 million financing. And with that came um, a one for one warrant priced at 10p, uh, which runs until the end of September of this year. So, you know, I guess we're saddled about. Eight and a half, nine p. at the moment. So, um, you know, obviously there's a chance those warrants could be could be in the money, and people might exercise them. I and mean, certainly for me, I'd probably be looking to exercise the ones I I got from which I took up in the placing before they expire myself. So, I uh, obviously can't speak for other shareholders, but um, we're sitting on a good cash balance, uh, I would say, at the moment but for the size and stage we're at. Uh, the budget we're working through at the moment, really the key determinant in the budget, or what will vary, it is the drilling. So, until you have know exactly how much drilling you need to do to get yourself to that minimum required um, number of ounces. I couldn't say for definite whether we would have an additional requirement between now and the end of the DFS. Um, But look, we're certainly fully financed at the moment to to work through this year and and well into next year. And I think ultimately, whether there is an additional cash needed before the end of the DFS would probably largely depend on quite how many metres we need to to do to make sure we get enough into reserves um, to hit those numbers for the feasibility study. As I said, you know there are those warrants out there which are which are pretty close to the money at the moment, um, and obviously you know the COVID which is out, out and about. Who knows quite um, what impacts that may or may not have? I mean, as I said, you know thankfully we've been you know, largely unaffected by it to date, um, but obviously you can't you can't count your chickens too
0: early. No, you can't. What are you going to do between in the next eighteen months? What are the moments? what are these catalysts people always talk about catalyst moments which are going people are going to get excited and drive the share price but you know they don't they don't, they don't always do that but what are, so what are the meaningful moments for you to drive that share price to allow you if you need to raise capital more cheaply than perhaps you could today I think um,
1: initially I think as I mentioned before my focus really is on growing that resource and then infill drilling it to increase the categorization of it so I think certainly by the end of Q1 We'll be looking to have, obviously, greater resources and also be increasing the categorization of them. Um, I don't want to put my hat 100% on a specific date, but certainly, you know, through Q4 and in Q1, we're certainly planning on um, a very large draw campaign with multiple rigs across San and Coro to, to really hit those ounces hard. Um, concurrently with that, as we said, we're doing now a, a load of test work at the moment out, out in Australia on, on the metallurgical side to obviously grow the processing route. So I think over the next six to nine months, you're seeing the project evolve um, to get it ready to, to commence the DFS. So for me, we'd then be ideally starting that feasibility study you know, from an engineering perspective um, in Q2 and sort of Q2, Q3, be hitting that feasibility study as hard as we can. Um, I think it's really worth caveating. It's, it's an important part of the business and, and often overlooked by people. You know, we commenced our ESIA, so our, our environmental and social impact assessment, which is an integral part of your your feasibility study and, and also then getting it permitted. and frankly, your social license to operate um, about two months ago. So that is obviously ongoing. Um, Guys are on the ground this week doing monitoring, for example, and and doing um, case studies and and questionnaires with with local communities. So, um, yeah, I mean, that will obviously be ongoing through the year, um, through the next 12 months as well. So look, I think there's going to be plenty of news flow, um, hopefully driving the share price. Uh, I guess we've been really fortunate with a good fair wind in the gold price as well, which probably always helps all gold companies. Um, and I guess, yeah, you know, it's easy to forget, but we have got a suite of, of other permits um, in Mali and Senegal as well. So I still think we've got the ability to make a grassroots discovery. Uh, and I think you've seen in you know, a number of companies in West Africa and, and across the, the globe really, where you know, discoveries can, can really make a difference to share prices and really drive your news flow if you make, go make make a big virgin discovery.
0: Okay. You mentioned where you are. You're in Mali. Molly's been in the uh, the headlines uh, for about the last six to nine months for all the wrong reasons. But a a few incidents last year, Samofo were the recipient of, of, of uh, some of that themselves. And we've spoken to a few Australian miners who, you know, don't want to go mining. Have you been affected at all?
1: So for us, I mean, it is largely business as usual, as I said. I mean, I know you use that in the context of Covid, but I think that, that I can also use that in the context of security and, and politics as well. Um, our project is in the south of Mali. Uh, you drive south out of Bamako about four and a half, five hours, uh, mainly on a tarmac road, which is which is nice uh, when you're in the back of a pickup. Um, but you know, generally, all the troubles really have been north of Bamako. So, I mean, Mali is an absolutely enormous country. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's enormous. And you know, in Southern Mali, all the operating mines generally are in Southern or Western Mali and they've been running unaffected by, um, you know, by any of these terrorist incidences um, and, and we're in amongst them as well. So, so we have been able to operate,
0: you know, as normal. Okay. Well, that's good news and long may that continue. Um, You, you, you do have something which you can't avoid though coming up, wet season. How does that affect your business?
1: Uh, well, it gets a little muddier. Um, yeah, I mean, the way we're set up, we, we generally try and work as hard as we can up to the wet season. And then over the worst kind of six weeks to two months of the wet season, we generally aren't doing significant drilling anyway. Uh, for us, I guess the cost of setting yourself up to work through the wet season probably is not justified, given the fact that you can have it as a pause time. So, for example, our, our staff who work on a rotation, um, you know, they run a very generally quite a long field season up to the wet season. Then they accrue a lot of leave. So you end up giving them all a bulk load of leave um, kind of over the wet season that they've accrued over a much longer field season leading up to it so rather than I guess investing huge amounts in I guess access roads and bridges at this stage um, we elect to kind of manage our field programs so that we're generally you know have work going on in the assay labs you know whether it's modeling database work and, and other yeah, you know, work building on the project, which doesn't involve sort of physically drilling the permits um, for kind of six weeks, two months.
0: Okay. And just back on Mali again, obviously, you know, there's a lot going on, big country and all of that, and Bamako is nearby, but how do you manage the 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 mining components? This? You've got to deal with the Ministry of Mines, you've got to deal with regional and state government, you've got to do things the right way. I know you're doing your ESIA and you've you took. I guess it touched upon some of the ESG components there, but how's doing business in country for miners where you are?
1: Well, we, I mean, I'm really fortunate in the sense. Obviously, I took over from John Forster, who, as you, as you said at the outset, is a very experienced West African hand. But I guess under John, a guy who, who people don't know about is a guy called Siaka Kimara. Mm. He's a Malayan guy who's worked with John for 20 years. Um, actually, educated in Russia, lived in Russia for, for 10 years, uh, married to a Russian lady. Um, speaks four languages um, so he lives in Bamako um, he runs uh, essentially the company in in Bamako so you know, he 's the one who it really has the closest relationship you know with the minister um, and with the various ministries as needed so so he we're very fortunate he, he manages that aspect of the business particularly now i mean when I was last in Bamako, I went when I saw the minister and the deputy ministers. Um, but obviously, I haven't been able to go there for, for a few months, sadly. But um, but obviously, so obviously, I, I do go and see them and keep in touch with them. But on a you know day to day, week to week basis, um, you know, he's fortunately there and able to manage that relationship for us.
0: Okay, so there, like I say, you've got this accelerated time frame, right? And you you don't want to be held up by any th- any paperwork here. So, what are the long poles in the tent for you between now and the end of next year in terms of permitting and licensing? What's what's
1: missing at the moment? Yeah, so so basically, you need to convert your exploration permit into a mining permit, uh, which obviously then would give you a twenty-five year sort of security of tenure, and lock in all of your fiscal codes and royalties and everything else. Um, the last example of that to happen in Mali was a company called Mali Lithium, uh, which obviously a lithium company also got some gold assets. it used to be called Brumium. Um but they permitted their project. Uh, and when I was chatting to their their MD, I think he said he, he did it in about ten weeks um, from start to finish. Um, but you know, the prerequisite is to have completed your feasibility study uh, and to have done your ESIA. So you need to have your completed ESIA and feasibility study, and then it's a relatively. Um, you know, the beauty of Mali is it's, it's got a 30-year commercial mining industry. You know, they have been through this process a lot. Um, you aren't the first commercial gold mine trying to do it and get permitted. You know, there's an established process and uh, route to it. And frankly, it's it's in their interests um, to get these projects permitted and built. Creates huge amount of employment. Uh, firstly, secondly, obviously creates, you know, significant tax revenue and royalty revenue for the for the country. You know, they've obviously had some big successes, um, you know, Yamfalila, obviously, Cola obviously a, a massive operation. But equally, they've got, you know, a number of mines which are coming, you know, towards the end of their life as well. So, um, you know, this might not be the biggest project um, ever built in Mali, uh, but equally, you know, it will be a profitable one, we hope uh, and expect. Uh, and obviously, it will, Create employment and generate plenty of revenue. So, so I certainly would expect it to, to hopefully go smoothly. The process of permitting once we once we've done all the prerequisite in terms of studies. Yeah,
0: we, we actually caught up with um, Mali Lithium a few months ago. I think was right, around Christmas. Yeah. Might have been December. Um, yeah.
1: How long did they did they they've they, 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 they done their permitting by then, right? They yeah, got it in that's September, right. September October. That's right.
0: Yeah, and it was as you say. He said it was relatively easy. They want to make they want to get. Um, they want to get the revenues. They want to get employment. So, as like you say, yeah. Hey, well, look, bro. Um, good run through. Nice to catch up Thanks. with you. It's been a long time. You've got a lot done in a short time. You've got a lot more to do. So, stay in touch. Yeah. Pick up that phone Thanks as things happen. Um, I'd like. I kind of like the thought of accelerated timeframes. Like you know, and if the economics mm-hmm. are there, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the scoping study is a good first indicator. And as you say, keep keep working, keep working on those numbers and make sure this thing can get done.
1: Brilliant. Thanks a lot for your time. Really great to be on. And uh, yeah, look forward to speaking again soon.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast, or our website, cruxinvestor.com. And of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.